So early in December, you probably remember that Jim Beatty, who directs our operations, kind of makes sure the church runs okay, he did a little video like the one we just watched in which he told you that going into 2024, it looked like we were going to be 11% behind budget. And it was kind of one of those things just wanted people to know so that they wouldn't be surprised if we had to make some cutbacks. And it's kind of a weird thing because in some sense, The Crossing has more people ever that we have an opportunity, we as a church have an opportunity to more people coming back to church in person, more people online, more people on podcasts and newsletters and devotionals. It's just been amazing how God has blessed us with more people to share the good news with. And so it was kind of weird to be in that situation and yet be running short on funds to do that. But it's not totally surprising because, you know, the economy has been wonky. And while more people are, are a part of the crossing and more people are giving, there are some people who just aren't in a position to give as much as they used to. So it was just kind of this weird thing, and we wanted you guys to know so that if you saw cutbacks, you wouldn't be surprised by it. But what I uh, uh, forgot is that this is the church that raised $465,000 in 10 days to pay off the medical debt of $50 million million in medical debt of 38 counties in Missouri. Or I forgot this is the church that raised $400,000 to pay off everybody's bill on the utility disconnect list during COVID so that nobody would have their utilities cut off and then gave another $200,000 to make sure that that, those same people didn't end back up on that utility disconnect list. This is the church that gave $400,000 to plant a church in Ferguson, Missouri, a multi-ethnic church in a a place that needed a gospel-believing church. I mean, this is a church that, that stayed faithful during COVID. I mean, this is not an ordinary church. We've been blessed by God. So what I turned, what was it, 11%? Uh, deficit of the budget, like we were under budget 11%, it turned out going into, we ended the year not 11% behind, but instead 4% above it. Like who knew, right? So I, I, I thought that since you guys, yeah, I really appreciate it. It's exciting what God's done. It, and, you know, since we had shared the need, we thought we should celebrate with you. And Jim, the guy who runs the operation, said it wasn't like just one person wrote this big check. It was people who hadn't given, started giving. People who had stopped giving, kicked it back in. People who gave faithfully, gave a little more. So I just want to say thanks, because that means going into 2024, that means we don't have to think, how are we going to cut back Kids Club? But how can we take every kid? It doesn't mean we don't have to say, how do we cut back camp? But how can we help more students go to camp? Or how do we have more people get counseling or more people be involved in small groups. So it's just a great place to be. So let, can we just take a second and pray and thank God and just dedicate this year to him? Because we don't want to take any of this for granted. So let's just take a moment and pray. God, we dedicate this year to you. We pray that you would use us however you want in our community, that you would fill us with your love and that we would let that love and that light shine in our world. I pray, Father, that that this year would be a year in our church where people would come to faith in Jesus and people would grow in their love of Jesus and that lives would be changed, our life would be changed. I thank you, God, that you're the kind of God who provides and you use your people. Thank you that you have blessed us here at the crossing. We don't take it for granted, God. It's all your grace and all your goodness and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are on the verge of wrecking your life. Um, 
I don't know how you'll do it, and unfortunately, there are a lot of ways that you could potentially wreck your life, right? I mean, it could be a moral compromise you make. It could be uh, an addiction that you give way to in your life. It could be taking something good like your family and making it an idol, and so having expectations on people that they can't live up to, and so you end up alienating the people that you love the most. It could be you make your career an idol, and so you, you give everything, and that becomes your identity, your career, so that you ignore your health, or you lie to get ahead in your career and then are found out, or you, know, you, you disregard your family or your personal life because your career is everything. That's your identity. There's just so many ways that you can wreck your life. I don't know how you might potentially do it. All I do know for sure is that the more you think I'm wrong and the more you think that you're not on the verge of wrecking your life, the more likely it is that I'm right. Why? Well, it's not because I can read your mind. It's not because I assume the worst about your character. It's because the Bible tells us really clearly that we have an unseen spiritual enemy who wants us to wreck our life, who wants to help us wreck our life. We see that in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That means right now, today, but not just today, every day, your enemy, the devil, is looking to devour your life, looking to destroy your life. And Peter knows that we don't think that way, not very often at least, and that's why he's telling us, be alert, be of sober mind. Pay attention to this. Before Antonin Scalia passed away, he was a, a Supreme Court justice. He gave an interview to the New York, um, to New York Magazine. But before you get there, just a little aside, just a quick aside about Antonin Scalia. You might remember that he was really good friends with another Supreme Court justice, a woman named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it was weird because Scalia is kind of the head of the conservatives and Ginsburg was the head of the liberals, but they really enjoyed a friendship. They did all kinds of stuff, like they'd go to the opera together. Or you know, here's a picture. They traveled with their families to India and they're like riding on this elephant. They look ridiculous, right? Uh, but those are two Supreme Court justices that disagree on a lot of things. But they're just hanging out, enjoying life together. And I, I, I just think, you know, before we enter into this crazy political season, like it's always crazy, but it's going to get crazier coming up soon. It's good to remember that if Supreme Court justices who like elephants or opera, right, who don't have that much in common, can hang out, be friends, learn from one another, respect one another, how much more should we as Christians be able to, to be friends with, learn from, respect uh, others who have really different beliefs than us? So when the world goes crazy, you and I don't have to be. We can be Christians who know that what we have in common in Jesus is far greater than anything that divides us. Okay, so that's my little aside as we go into crazy time. Uh, back to the story of Antonin Scalia, though. He gives, this art, he gives this interview to New York Magazine. In the context, he's talking about his faith. He's a, he was a devout Catholic, and he talks about believing the devil. And the New York Magazine interviewer is like, what? You believe in the devil? Like, have you seen any evidence of him? And, and Scalia, really intelligent, says, you know, it's kind of weird because you see him all the devil at work in the Gospels. But then you don't see as much now in the same way. And he, he, he says, I think it's because the devil's pretty smart. So the, the, the interviewer is like, well, what do you think the devil is doing now? And he's like, well, I think the devil is getting people to not believe in him or in God. And he's been pretty successful with that, which makes me think of this line. I don't 
no, who said it? It's been the usual suspects, but they didn't come up with it. It says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Isn't that true? Because if you don't think the devil exists, if you don't think about the devil or don't even think he's necessarily real, then you're not alert to him. Like Peter told us, be alert, be a sober mind because he's out there prowling around, which means if you don't think about him, if you're not alert, you're not paying attention, then you're one step closer to wrecking your life. So back to this interview with the New York Magazine, the, the, the interviewer says, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? And Scalia says, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. My God, are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. And it goes on. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. So let me ask you, do you believe in the devil? Do you believe in the devil? I mean, you're not smarter or more sophisticated than Jesus, are you? And if you do believe in the devil and believe that he's real, what do you think he's like and what do you think he's up to? How would you have answered that question? And how do you respond to him in your life? Those are some of the questions I want to wrestle with today in Luke chapter 4. But let's just start with this, that, that the devil is a spiritual being. He was created by God and then rebelled against God. But he's created. Like We don't want to underestimate the power of the devil, but we don't want to overestimate the power of the devil either. So the devil is not God. He's not all-powerful. He can't be everywhere present. He's, he's all, not all-knowing. He was created by God. The first time he shows up in the Gospel of Luke is in chapter 4, which is where we are today. So let's start at the beginning of Luke, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So Jesus is full of the Spirit, and he's led by the Spirit. And he's led into the wilderness. Now, in the Bible, the wilderness is always a very scary place. It's a dark place. It's where people are tested and tried and tempted. It's a very difficult uh, place in your life. And, and sometimes it's easy to think that if I'm in the wilderness, that means I'm far from God. But that's not true because it's the Spirit of God that led Jesus, that leads you and I into the wilderness, right? And so if you find yourself this morning and you say, I, I'm in the wilderness, I'm in a scary season, I'm in a season where I feel like I'm being tempted and tested and tried, you can know this, you aren't there by accident and you're not alone. Now, I can't tell you exactly why you're in the wilderness. Like, why are you going through this season of, of, of tempting and testing? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because God wants to teach you to humility, Right, like he, he wants to, you, to show you that all the sins out there in the world that you get frustrated and angry about are right here inside of you too. Or, or maybe God's put you in a season of temptation in the wilderness because he wants to teach you to rely on him and not yourself. God-reliance, not self-reliance, is something that sometimes can only be learned when you're in the wilderness. Or maybe God has put you in the wilderness this morning because he wants to reveal to you something about yourself. Like when he, he said to Abraham, Abraham, do you love your son Isaac more or do you love me? Who do you love? Maybe God is you in the wilderness and he's saying to you, who do you love? Do you love your family or me? Your stuff or me? Your body or me? Your rights or me? And sometimes you have to go to the wilderness to know, to know what's inside our own heart. 
but regardless of why you're in the wilderness, you, you can know that you aren't alone. You're not there by accident, and you're not alone. God is with you. So back to those first same two verses. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So Luke wants us to, to draw a parallel between Jesus' temptation and the first temptation in the garden and then Israel's temptation in the wilderness. So let, let me explain. Remember Adam and Eve are in the garden and everything is perfect. And the, the devil in the form of the serpent comes and tempts them and, and they fail that temptation. And then Israel is in, led into the wilderness and, and they're tested there by the devil and they fail. They're tested for 40 years. Well, now here comes Jesus. He's going to, to go into the wilderness and he's going to be tested for 40 days. But where Adam and Eve and Israel failed, Jesus proved faithful. He proved faithful. He was tempted, but he didn't sin. So here's the Holy Spirit leading Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by the devil. The devil's trying to tempt him away from God, tempt him to sin against God and therefore wreck his life so that the devil could devour him. Verse two. He ate nothing during those 40 days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, now when we read these temptations that the devil offered Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, what's the core of that temptation? Because you and I are not going to be uh, tempted to turn stone into bread. But what's the core that we can relate to? And, and I think here's the temptation. We are tempted to provide for our needs and not depend on God to meet our needs. We're, we're tempted to, to provide for ourselves our needs, to try to meet our needs, to manipulate and control things instead of relying on God to meet our needs in his time if he sees fit. That word need is, is kind of a dangerous word because when we start to come about needs, it can lead us to a bad place. It might be good to say, what's the with someone I need and something I want? Because we start saying things like, you know, I need a better spouse, or I need more obedient kids, or I need a more appreciative boss, or I need more money, or I need a break, or I need better health, or, you know, you know whatever it is. The devil wants us to fixate on our needs. Because when he can get us fixated on our needs, then we start thinking, you know, I need this, and I kind of have a right to it. I mean, I am entitled to it. I, I need this. So I'm entitled to have it, and then we start to demand it, and, and then we start to say, hey, you know, everybody needs to try to help me meet my needs. And we judge them based on whether they're doing a good job of, of meeting those needs. So, I mean, you can take anything, literally anything you feel like you need. But let's just run marriage. I need a better marriage. I, I, I kind of have a right to a better marriage. I demand a better marriage. God, why haven't you given me a better marriage? Now I'm mad at God. It reminds me of this old Peanuts cartoon uh, Lucy says, why do you think we're put here on earth, Charlie Brown? And he says, to make others happy. And she said, well, I don't think I'm uh, making anyone very happy. Of course, nobody's making me very happy either. Somebody's not doing their job. See, that becomes us. People aren't making me happy, so somebody's not doing their job. So how does Jesus respond to the lie that the devil gives him? Well, he, sa he answers him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now that it is written, where was it written? Well, it was written in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And so what Jesus is doing is he's quoting a Bible verse that he had sat down and memorized. 
But notice that he's not arguing with the devil. He doesn't try to reason or debate with the devil. Instead, he fights the devil's lie with biblical truth. So when the devil comes along and lies to you and me and tells us that we have these needs and we deserve to have those needs met, we have a right to them, and, 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 and we find ourselves starting to get angry at God because he hasn't met our needs, how do we fight that lie? Well, we fight it with the truth. Maybe you have a truth like found in Philippians 4.19. Philippians 4.19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So I don't, I don't try to meet my needs. I don't demand that I get my needs met. Instead, I wait on God who will meet my needs. And if God doesn't give it to me, it's because I don't need it. I don't need it. So back to the story in Luke chapter four. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. So, so what's the core of this temptation that you and I can relate with? And I think it's this, is the devil is tempting Jesus with a shortcut. He's tempting him with a shortcut. See, Jesus knew that he was going to one day, if he followed God's plan, rule over all the kingdoms of the world. He knew one day he would say, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. But if he followed God's plan, before he had the crown, before he got the crown, he had to get the cross. Right, because when, when Jesus followed God's plan, the cross came before the crown. So what the devil is doing is saying, Jesus, I've got a shortcut here. You can have the crown without the cross. And I think he comes and I think he tries to make that same lie to you and me. Because Jesus tells us that if we want to find our life, we must first lose it. He says, if you want to become great, you must be a servant. He says, if you want to lay up treasures in heaven, you must be generous here in your life on earth. And, and, and we want, we, we want the, the, the treasures without the generosity. We want the greatness without being a servant. We want to find our life without first losing it. We want the crown without the cross. And what's Jesus do? Well, he answers that lie from the devil in the same way that he did the first time. He says, it is written. Again, another verse he quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Jesus sat down and memorized Bible verses. And he said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Hey, there's a, a, a young high school girl named Paige Winter and her father, Charlie. They were uh, out on a vacation on the North Carolina coast and they were standing out in the ocean in kind of waist deep water. Here is a picture of them. I'll explain why she has her hands like that in a second. But they're standing out there in the water and uh, all of a sudden Paige is pulled under by a shark. And witnesses there on the beach said that Charlie, dad, he, by the way, is a Marine, he, he punched the shark five times in the nose. And if he punched me, I'd let go too, right? And the shark did, right? He, he let, it wouldn't take me five times. So he, he, the shark lets go of his daughter, but not without doing some damage. That's why her hands are all bandaged. But here's the point. When you quote the truth of the Bible to the devil, what you're doing is you're punching the devil in the nose. But you're not doing it in your strength. 
right? Because you're not a Marine, at least not compared to the devil. He's he not going to be too afraid of you. But, but, but when you punch the devil in the nose with the scripture, then he lets go because the truth of God's word is stronger than his lies. That's how you fight the devil, is by punching him in the nose with the truth of God. Verse 9 The devil led him, so this is the third temptation now. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. So here's a recreation of of the temple and they think that this is the highest corner and so that this is most likely where uh, Satan puts Jesus and it's about a 150 foot drop and they would kill people by pushing them off of this and to their death. And so he takes Jesus up here and says, look, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down there. And so the devil keeps saying in the next verse, for it is written, Catch what the devil is doing. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So it's kind of funny what, what the devil is doing here. Like he, He's tempted Jesus twice and both times Jesus said, it is written and quoted a Bible verse. So the devil's like, well, I can play that game. So the devil comes to Jesus and throw, throw yourself down from here because it is written. And then he quotes a Bible verse, this one from Psalm 91. So it's kind of interesting to, 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 to think that, that here is the devil who's trying to destroy you, who's trying to, 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 to wreck your life, and he's using Scripture. Like, he's quoting Scripture. Now, the, the devil's taking that Scripture out of context, and he's misusing it, but he still he's quoting Scripture to you to try to convince you that he's right, which makes me think of this quote by Origen, one of the church fathers. You can see he lived and died a long time ago. But he said, whenever you hear quotations from the Scripture, be careful of trusting the speaker immediately. Consider the person, what sort of life he leads, what sort of opinion he holds, what sort of intention he has. Otherwise, he might pretend he is holy and might not be holy because, because the devil can quote scripture. So be careful because not everybody quoting a Bible verse is using it rightly, right? Not everybody using a Bible verse has truth on their side or God on their side. But again, what's the core of this, of this uh, uh, temptation of throwing yourself down and God will protect you? And it's this. What the devil is saying is to Jesus and to you and me is you can test God. Don't trust him, test him. Make him prove himself to you. Throw yourself down because the devil said he'd rescue you. So if you had real faith, you'd throw, you'd jump. If you had real faith, you'd do it. But genuine faith does not need sensational proof. Genuine faith does not need sensational proof. In fact, asking for some sensational sign is is usually a sign of a lack of faith. Because the, 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 the genuine faith doesn't demand the sensational. It's content with the ordinary evidences. Okay, let's go to the, to the last verse. So the, the devil struck out three times. When the devil, remember, strike one, first temptation, Jesus says, it is written. Then the second one, uh, first one's turning stone into bread. Uh, the, 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 the second one is all this can be yours if you take the shortcut. The third one is, is test God, don't trust him. And he struck out all three times. So when he had finished all this tempting, after 40 days of an onslaught of tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So so the devil's not done. He's still got his eyes open. He's looking for the right time to test you. 
when is the right time? If you were, if you were the devil, when would you attack you? Like, when are you most susceptible? When are you most vulnerable to the lies of the devil? Is it when you're tired? Is it when you're disappointed with your life? Is it when you haven't been to church or haven't been in your small group or haven't opened your Bible much lately? When are you most vulnerable? Do you know? And where are you most vulnerable? Like, what part of your life The devil went to parts of Jesus' life where he said, I think maybe I can get him here. But he has a strategy for you. He has a plan, and it's different different from the plan for the person next to you. He's got his own personalized strategy to tempt you to wreck your life by sinning against God and walking away from him. A football coach has a, a scouting report for the team they're getting ready to play, right? So they're getting ready to play this team, and, and they hands out to all the players and coaches, here's the scouting report, here's where that team is vulnerable, and how we're going to try to exploit their weaknesses. But a good coach also has a scouting report on his own team. In other words, he knows his own team's weaknesses, and how the other team's going to try to exploit them. Do you know the devil's scouting report on you? Can you figure it out? Like where you're weakest, what areas, and, and here's why I ask, here's why it's important. Because when you do, then, then you can go memorize Bible verses. Jesus did. So you can go and memorize Bible verses so that you can punch the devil in the nose. Like, like Charlie Winter punched the shark in the nose. You can punch the devil in the nose with the power of God's word, but only if you have the scripture. Like when you get tempted to lust, or when you get tempted to jealousy, or when you get tempted to gossip, or when you get tempted to anger, do you, can you go, it is written. Or no, do you just get eaten up by the devil because you don't know? Like, like there's, a, there's a fight and you didn't take a sword, you took a butter knife because you're not prepared for what the devil's lies are to you. And you go, well, I don't know what verse. Like I deal with anger, what verse? Right? Well, I mean, you could do worse than just start with Google. I mean, you know, you could start there, but you could ask somebody in your small group. You could ask a, a staff member at the crossing, one of the pastors. You could ask around a friend, but you need to have the truth because that's how Jesus fought the devil and it's how you and I are to fight him as well. Here, let's end with this. I think it's really encouraging. It's out of the book of Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus faced all the temptations you face. Whatever temptation you have, Jesus had too. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. You can go to Jesus and he will help you in your time of need because he experienced the same temptations that you do, yet he defeated the devil. He was tempted, but he did not sin. So he is there able to empathize with you but also able to give you the grace and strength to say no, to be alert to the devil who's prowling around like a roaring lion so that you will not be devoured. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we do not go to battle in our own strength, but we go in the strength of Jesus Christ, the one who is tempted but did not sin, the one who defeated the devil. We go in the strength and the power of the word of God, whose promises give life, whose promises are attractive and beautiful to us, whose promises are powerful to defeat the lies of the enemy. 
Jesus, I pray that you would open our heart to us so that we might see where we are vulnerable. So that we might know where we are most susceptible to leave you, to walk away from the one that we love. Jesus, I pray that you would hear our prayers and be there for us, giving us the grace and strength we need in our time of need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Stay warm.